Welcome to the Photo Banter Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gagne, and on today's podcast, I speak with photographer Joe McNally. Joe is an extremely accomplished photographer, having worked with clients such as National Geographic, Sports Illustrated, ESPN, and Life Magazine, to name a few. Beyond shooting for top clients while traveling to nearly over 70 countries on assignment, Joe has spent years teaching photography workshops across the world, as well as being a Nikon camera ambassador. Joe's been an industry legend for years. This guy's done so much. Um, I've been following his work for so long and was really excited to get a chance to speak with him. So I hope you guys enjoy it, and thanks so much for listening. All right, well, uh, Joe McNally, uh, welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, you've uh, interviewed a lot of really wonderful photographers. I'm a big fan of a lot of people yeah. that you've spoken with. Yeah, definitely. It's been exciting to talk to different people about what they do, and I was ex- really excited to talk to you because you've done so much in this business. Um, but I guess to kind of start off, I was kind of curious, like, where you grew up, uh, what were you kind of interested in as a kid? Like, were you into photography pretty early on, or... What were you kind of into growing up? <laughs> well, we were kind of into moving. <laughs> it was, uh, and it wasn't a choice on my part. My my dad changed jobs a lot, so I went to five different grammar schools. Wow! And uh, lived in a variety of places. I mean, nothing exotic or anything like that. You know, Chicago, Cleveland. Uh, moved twice in Chicago. Moved to White Plains, New York. Moved down to Eastchester, New York. M- my parents were you know new york oriented my dad was definitely a new yorker always followed the giants and the yankees and so growing up i kind of had this sense of like one of these days we'd probably end up back around new york and and we did and uh so i I was not into photography i didn't didn't even have a clue you know in the early uh years of my life for sure didn't um uh pick up photography or, or or you know have it presented to me as something I had to work on until I was in college and I was required to take a photography class. I was I was training as a journalist. I, I was at the Newhouse School at Syracuse University and I was in what they call the magazine sequence and I was studying to become a writer. Oh, wow. That's exciting. What, what did your parents do growing up? What did they do for a living? Uh, my mom, uh, in the early years, was a stay-at-home mom. Then she got... Um, Went back to school and became a licensed practical nurse. Oh, wow. And went to work. And my dad uh, was, for a variety of, of different entities, uh, worked in the railroads his whole life. And he worked with rolling freight. He, uh, he uh, did leasing and selling of what they call tank cars, which is uh, the kind of vehicle on the rails that moves large volumes of liquid. And so he... Uh, he loved it. He he, you know, did well at it. You know, uh, and uh, um, just he, he was one of those guys. He, he was in World War II, came out. You know, got a family, got a job, started working hard, and right. it, it, that was 1950s America, salt of the earth. You know, and uh, so yeah. yeah, he he was he was a real good dad, and 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 my mom same same thing. Both hardworking people, and I've got two older sisters. I'm very close to. Were they pretty supportive of your photography when you kind of started getting into it? Dad certainly was, yeah. because um, I uh, my first job in New York City, I got a job as a copy boy at the New York Daily News, which wow. was you know the old uh, you know um, you know the Daily Planet and all of that you know that that we all grew up with, and and Dad had grown up next door to Dickie Young. Uh, many, many years ago in the same neighborhood. And Dickie Young was a legendary sports columnist at the New York Daily News. So dad was pleased as punch uh, <laughs> that I had this job, even though it was a basic job, wasn't a photography job. It was a foot in the door yeah. of New York journalism. Mom was like, kind of shrugged, you know, and she was like, oh, well, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> you know? And, um, but, you know, it came around and she eventually sort of saw that it was something I loved doing and something that could work. And what kind of stuff did they have you doing there when you were working there, like your first kind of gig there, the uh, copy stuff? Oh, at the news? Well, back in the days of Linotype, Hot Lead, um, the newspaper, 
got printed on paper, obviously, mm. still still do, but um, copy was what a writer would produce on sheets of typewritten paper. It wasn't electronic transmission back then, so copy editors would make physical marks on the paper. Mm. And so the, that piece of copy would go from the writer's desk to the sub-editor's desk, to the editor-in-chief's desk, over to the copy room, and finally shaped and then sent downstairs, and they would take it, and uh, a linotype operator would take it and transform hot lead into print, into type, big blocks of type, and they'd tie, you know, literally tie them together dr and drop them in um, onto the machines, and then the paper would roll. So it was a physical process of moving paper around. That's why you got the name Copy Boy. Yeah. And of course, we did other things. You know, we did favors and coffee runs and film pickups at Yankee Stadium and uh, grocery pickups for, you know, the high-powered editors and, you know, dry cleaning, uh, ran radio cars on deadline, you know, all that sort of stuff. It, w it was a gopher job, but it was for the largest, I'm, I'm guessing here, don't hold me to this, but at the time it was the largest quote-unquote picture newspaper in the world and I was excited about the whole deal about being in New York. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. You kind of got an inside look at how things operate because I know um, being a photographer myself, like I've never worked internally at a magazine so I've only been hired so I, you never, you don't really get the sense of like the inner workings of like what editors do and like the, their job sometimes so you, so you feel like that experience is pretty useful kind of getting to see how editors work and how the whole process internally kind of works. Sure, and it was exciting watching a big uh, metropolitan newspaper rumble to life every night because the, when the presses started running, like the whole building would shake. Wow. You know, and you could feel it when the presses started. And there were uh, uh, four editions, sometimes even more, but it was a one-star, two-star, three-star, and then the four-star final. So the paper would go through revisions all night long. Mm. And uh, the editors were under a lot of pressure. I, I always remember when I was working the, the, the main copy desk with Bill Umstead and Joe Kovach. Uh, Kovach was a uh, uh, one of the top editors and he was from the South and I, I took just a minute, you know, or so I, I went running off to help somebody else with something and he was looking around for me and he was like, copy, they used to call you copy, copy. And he, he used to call me honey or darling or something like that. And, and, uh, and he looked over at me when I came back and he said, darling, don't leave me now in my hour of need, <laughs> you know? So I'd watch that copy slot. And as soon as that paper, that was your, that was your mantra as a copy boy. As soon as that paper hit that slot, you grabbed it. Yeah. And like while you're working there at the same time, were you kind of shooting photos for yourself when you had time or? Kinda... Absolutely. Um, I took lunch hours and early mornings. I prayed for bad weather because the way I could get into the newspaper without an assignment Weather and they photos. would never give me an assignment you know because that would go against the credo of assigning the photographers um if i picked up a bad weather picture like super rainstorm super snowstorm something like that anything super frigid i prayed for bad weather because i would when i would submit a picture and the editors would select it I was treated as a freelancer at that point because I, I was a copy boy. I was not a photographer. Yep. And I would get paid 25 bucks a picture. And when you're only taking home $109 a week, 25 bucks is a big deal. Hell yeah. That's good stuff. And uh, I guess how did you kind of break off from that? Like um, what was kind of your goal initially? Like I know looking at your website now, it's a lot of portraiture and stuff. Um, but I guess how did you kind of break away from your copy boy job to start shooting? Was it... Did it take you a while, or what was kind of the transition there? <laughs> the transition was the Daily News fired me. Okay. Um, I had segued successfully from being a copy boy after, I don't know, 14, 15, 16 months as a copy boy. Mike Lipak had been a studio apprentice, and that was the step before becoming a photographer. And he became a photographer. He went from being a studio apprentice, working in what they called the photo studio, out onto the street. Mm -hmm. So they created an opening in the studio. So they moved me in. And I and the studio apprentice, I ran Versamat machines, captioned and washed prints, etc. Just, a, again, a gopher position in lots of ways, but specifically designed around the photography operation. Mm -hmm. So that was a big step up, big step up in pay. All of a sudden, I was, I was making 250 bucks a week yeah. as a salary. And I was like, cool, this is moving in the right direction. And then the Daily News got hit with some economic difficulties. And, you know, last hired, first fired. 
you know, so I went out the door. Mm. But by that time, I had been in the city for maybe three years, and uh, I had kind of, you know, people had known my name a little bit, so I was able to hit the streets and start what they called stringing for the wires. And I started working for AP, UPI, the New York Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer. I would pick up work from them. And that put me on the street with a camera in my hands. And all of a sudden, I was making a living shooting pictures. What kind of stuff were you shooting back then? Was it mostly kind of photojournalistic stuff back then? Straight up black and white coverage. Uh, news events, uh, feature stuff, ball games, uh, portraits, you name it. Anything that came along as a... Um, run of paper, you know, kind of like, we need this, you know, uh, wire service stuff was fun because you had to hit it, hit it hard, get it back to the office fast. Mm -hmm. And like when you're first starting out, like, you know, a lot of photographers listening to this are probably starting out. Um, I guess like what advice would you give to them? Because I think when you're first starting out, you don't know a lot of people and you want to get your work out there. And like you said, you kind of started working for like the different agencies and whatnot. Um, how, how are you kind of getting your foot in the door? Were you just kind of like just knocking on doors and showing your portfolio? What were you doing? And like, what would you tell like younger photographers you think to, who, are, who feel like they, they don't have any contacts, but they're trying to get their work out there, you think? Yeah, it's a different time, a different era. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I had dipped my toe into the waters of New York press photography. And like anything, you know, even though it's a big city, the press photography you know, circle of contacts was kind of like a little bit of a small town. Once you started to get to know people, they knew your name, they would refer you around. And so it kind of spread a little bit, you know, and then you'd have a, you know, maybe you'd have a success, you know, you'd get a, a um, you know, like a half page picture in the New York Times. Well, that got noticed, you know, and it went from there. Yeah. Nowadays, the path is very different yeah. right, for young photographers because the option of going the newspaper route has been minimized. Yeah. And uh, so, but the internet is there, obviously, to build a website, to um, build a, a blog or a presence via some measure of social media participation and marketing yourself. And I always you know, have the advice that, you know, you, you start small and regional and then you grow from there. Yeah. You know, you start the local businesses, local, you know, offices, somebody needs portraits. I have a staff of, I don't know, a law firm has a staff of 10 people and they all need new headshots. And so you start to build a variety of, um, uh, approaches and styles, you know, the portraiture, maybe, uh, maybe some folks will do real estate, maybe some folks will do uh, weddings. Now, now weddings, that's a little bit of a different thing. If you're going to be a wedding photographer, what I've kind of sorted out over time, you have to really go after the wedding market. Oh, you know, yeah, very it's, strong. It, it's its own niche. Yeah. And would you say like, the longer you've done this, it's just like more opportunities kind of present themselves just from the relationships you've built with like different people you've worked with that this kind of slowly kind of builds on itself, you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. People, um, you know, like I work for ESPN on a semi-regular basis and I've known the editor there for 25 years. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, that is obviously also a kind of a cautionary word like don't burn bridges yeah treat people well because again things circle back on you and someone that you met at a certain point in time will be in a place that they can either hire you or not maybe in the future so it just pays to um conduct yourself well yeah definitely i, I when i was first getting out of school i assisted this photographer and he, this thing that always stuck out in my mind he said it's easy to get get a client but it's hard to keep a client like in your mind, what is it that you have to do to like retain a client? Because as you know, it's hard enough just to get, be it whatever, commercially editorial. It's it's hard enough to get one assignment, but to kind of have a, a client that you can c continually work with. What do you think the key is to kind of keeping that going, you think? Again, it's harder yeah. now than it used to be because there's a, a gazillion photographers out there. And there's a lot of them who are good, mm -hmm. you know. And so art directors, you know, <laughs> you know, um, you know that, that old joke, you know, art directors, you know, like to sleep around. <laughs> um, so they will ch choose a variety of skills, talents, and uh, uh, means of working and a variety of photographers oftentimes to fulfill the mission of their magazine, publication, website, whatever it may be. But um, you do want repeat business. You want people to come back. You want to leave them laughing. So manage expectations, um, under promise and over deliver. Mm. 
always meet deadlines and uh, you know make sure you you cover and more you know give give them the the coverage that they need and have been uh, has been requested of you but also see if you can put a personal spin on it go a little bit further uh, offer up you know um, an additional portrait yeah. or a, a, another look or something where you know the uh, you're being driven internally to excel and that radiates through your pictures and hopefully we'll speak to that editor and they'll say okay yeah when i get the next big job uh that person is in consideration yeah they can depend on you and you know one thing like i I followed your career for a long time um i think like when i was in school i went to the photo plus expo and i think you might have been talking at the nikon booth or something like that and the one thing that's always kind of struck me about you like different interviews i've worked with is you just seem like you have a real sense of like uh like marketing and like running a business is that something you've always been good at? Because like uh, looking at you, you, you seem like you adapt well to like new technologies. Like you have a YouTube page. You're always doing like interesting videos. You you have a you run your Instagram page. Is marketing something you've always been good at, or is it something you're like continually like working at? You know, it, we work at it, and emphasis on the we because I'm blessed in the sense that we have a team here at the studio, mm. small team but very potent, very effective. Uh, Lynn Del Mastro is our studio manager for a long time. She runs the business impeccably, handles bids, estimates, billings, all that stuff. Documentation that comes from the studio, um, you know, I will say is basically uh, flawless. You know, she just is pays a great deal of attention to rights, rates, uh, and details of an invoice, of an estimate, what we get into, etc. Annie Cahill runs our uh, social media marketing, mm. um, and I write all the stuff. I write all my posts, um, but she directs me. She shepherds me. Um, Annie's also my wife. Uh, she uh, worked for Nikon for 12 years and then was the director of the professional division at Adorama Camera for a number of years. Oh, wow. So she's very familiar with the business. So what she did was throw a kind of a... She corralled me a bit, you know, on social media and directed me and make sure that our efforts have cohesion and uh, a, a point, you know, to it. You know, uh, maybe it's a series of photographs. Maybe it spins off a news event or, or a thing that uh, we are anticipating doing, etc. Mm. Then Callie, our crew chief, has been with me for nine years. Very experienced uh, and a uh, very good eye and really runs the, you know, the logistics of the assignment, the gear, the, the lighting. He knows kind of what I need before I even know it at this point. So I emphasize that it is a teamwork effort to be sure. And marketing, you know, honestly, you know, I think it's kind of a surprise maybe if, you, if you've been around for a while yeah. and I've been around for a while, it almost like is surprising because when I started this business, I was like, I'm a photographer. I, I'm, I shoot pictures. That's it. <laughs> and then you all of a sudden realize that you go forward. Now you're really not a photographer anymore. You're a brand. Yeah, yeah. And you have to maintain all aspects of a brand, which means you have to put yourself out there. You have to market yourself. You have to shoot the pictures. You have to answer the emails. You have to write the blog. You have to participate in Instagram. You have to get back to people. It's a multifaceted job. Mm. That's for sure. And the, the thing that I've always struck been kind of interesting about you, like you're a really busy working photographer. Like you said, you, you work with like Sports Illustrated, ESPN, Nat Geo, a million other clients. But then you also have this business where you do like workshops and you do a lot of like uh, public speaking stuff. Like, do you view it? Is it almost like two separate businesses you're running? Like the workshops is one thing and then your assignment work and all your commercial stuff is like another thing? Is it like kind of two different markets you're kind of working? That's a, a good question. Um, you know, and, and um, you know, a perceptive question because, yes, the, the public face of the studio uh, out there on Facebook or this and that, we uh, tout what we are doing in, in the teaching mode because mm -hmm. we are attracting people or, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, people will come to workshops or clients will say, you know, we're hire you to speak at a PPE or something like that. And then they'll actually, they'll want to access your social media channels to help them promote their participation. So that really is the public face of the studio. Mm -hmm. Underneath that, uh, we're shooting. 
And that's really uh, the lion's share of our our energy in a great way goes into that aspect of things because that becomes more the the predominant uh, economic factor that keeps us going Hmm. is, is shooting jobs. And jobs are tough to get. So we spend a lot of time and effort, you know, trying to call clients, write proposals. Uh, and then when you engage on a job, it's, it's rarely cut and dried anymore. Um, you know, you, you shoot a job, you deliver, you know, a set of, uh, JPEGs, et cetera. They come back, there's retouching needs. Maybe there are uh, additional needs beyond that, more, more accelerated retouching or this and that. It becomes kind of a process. So a job, quote unquote, a job you shoot in a day or two yeah. is still lingering, you know, a month later. Yeah, definitely. And like with like all the lectures and stuff you do, um, you're like really good at it, man. Like, have you always been comfortable like talking, uh, public speaking and stuff? Because I was watching one last night. I don't know where it was. I forget where you were. You're doing like a lighting demonstration in front of like I might have been like a thousand people or something. It was a lot of people, and you're just demonstrating. And you, you, it was almost it was pretty amazing. Like you almost felt like you had you like you're a stand up comedian. Like you were yeah. keeping the crowd engaged because most people they say like their number one fear is like public speaking. Mm-hmm. Or, like, have you? always been good at that this like kind of communicating with people and like the public speaking aspect or that you do because it's pretty amazing because like like i said like most people that's like their biggest fear um yeah i guess you know um i I, i'm relatively comfortable at it uh you know i have my ups and downs as we all do uh i try to engage with people i if you're in a teaching mode Mm. i find people learn better if they're laughing a bit Mm-hmm. So I try to uh, be lighthearted about it. I try to poke some fun at myself. Also thoroughly and completely identify with the fact that when I'm doing lighting demonstrations, I'm making mistakes all the time. Yeah. And you're hopefully building something and getting it better and getting better. And people enjoy seeing that process instead of just kind of, uh, you know, assuming that the quote unquote big shot photographer always gets it right. Yeah. That's not the case. You know, it's a process for everyone concerned, whether you've got 10 years in or 10 months in, and you know, you are constantly learning, constantly seeking uh, to develop techniques and try new things. So, yeah, so I, I rattle around, Um, you know, I try to have a good time. I figure if I'm having a good time, that'll come across and whatever audience I have will also have a good time. Yeah, no, it's really good. Like even you were, I think on the stage, you were, you were like, yeah, I do this lighting demonstrations and I learned from them as much as you guys probably because it's like you're just tinkering around with it. It was, it was pretty interesting. And like, I know you do a lot of workshops. I saw on your website. I think you have some stuff coming up in England, I think next month. Yeah. Um, when did you do the workshops and like, what's your approach to those? Like, wh- what do you kind of get out of that? I guess, is it people kind of come in there just looking to learn a new skill, I guess, pretty much? Sure. Uh, I mean, one of the best ways to learn something actually is to teach it, Mm. you know, and uh, certainly, you know, I've been teaching lighting, for instance, for a long time. And, you know, via the mechanism of teaching, you oftentimes have to examine what you do yourself. Like, you know, somebody will ask you a question that'll bring you up short and you'll be like, oh, yeah, that's a good question. Like, why did I do that? <laughs> you know, because you do things intuitively and quickly in the field. Oftentimes you're under pressure on a job and you just kind of seek the most direct path and try to succeed at that. Yeah. So when you teach, you ramble around a little bit. You maybe experiment. You're trying to explain things. So you double down or double back yeah. on stuff and go over basics upon basics upon basics. And that helps your own photography. No mm. two ways about it. No, it's really interesting. And um, I guess to go back a little bit, I was kind of curious, like like you're doing like the, uh, working for like the wire service and stuff. Um, when did you kind of start getting into like working with magazines? Because I know you, you work with Life Magazine and a bunch of other publications. Um, when did you kind of start transitioning into working editorially, I guess? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, being a, coming out of newspapers, and wire services, you're in storytelling mode, you're in coverage mode. And, but what I did find over time was that um, I did have a pretty good imagination and I did see in color pretty well. And back when I started, newspapers and wire services were not necessarily color entities. So I started to drift, well, not drift, I guess uh, a bit of a process. I, when I was working, um, 
for wire services and newspapers, I came to the attention of a, a gentleman at ABC Television. Long story short, I got hired. My first staff photography job was as a staff network photographer for ABC Television wow. in New York City. And my boss just looked at me and he said, you know, we shoot color, you know, we, we shoot Kodachrome, you know, and I'm like, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know how to do that really, you know. And so I had to learn on the job uh, and I this failed is, this a is, lot. This is slide film, kids. <laughs> Latitude <laughs> is like... <laughs> just about zero. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, so I was, I was working all of a sudden in transparency material. Uh, I had to light things. I had to bounce around i would shoot monday night football for abc and the next day i'd be shooting susan lucci on all my children on a soap opera set and shooting indoor ectochrome then i would be uh, with abc news covering an inaugural um, or a campaign i travel with reagan i travel with kennedy all those folks this is all you know kind of back in the day stuff and i found that i responded to color pretty well yeah. long story short um and uh that led me to magazines because I, I didn't stay at ABC that long. It was a kind of a small canvas. I mean, I don't, I'm not denigrating the job. They did a lot uh, of things and I enjoyed it, but I was like, I want to do more expansive stuff. I want to travel a bit more, et cetera. So I quit my job. Yeah. Um, when I got offered a freelance gig to cover the first launch and landing of the space shuttle. Wow. And I walked into my boss's office. I had that assignment in my back pocket, and I said, basically, I'm um, given notice. You know, yeah. it was it was not. He was not happy to see me go, um, which was a good thing. Well, it was, would have been bad if he was happy, yeah. you know, to see me go. But um, yeah, and then I jumped off. That was. Whew, I'm going to say it was 8081 without being too specific there in memory. Mm -hmm. And I started freelancing for magazines. And uh, Discover Magazine had just been launched, a science magazine. I worked for them a fair amount, Money Magazine. And then by 1984, I was shooting jobs for Sports Illustrated and Life. And was it like, were you kind of shooting more portraiture at that point? Because I know looking at your work now, it's mostly portrait based. Yeah, I, I did a lot of portraiture. Sports Illustrated basically never would assign me to the ball game. Yeah. Because they had people who would do the action stuff who were just so good at it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I was a middling, at best, action photographer. And so they would assign me to do the portraits. And, I, you know, I would shoot covers. I would shoot feature stuff of athletes behind the scenes, at home, you know, uh, whatever it might be that was off the playing field. Mm -hmm. So that was fun. Life did the same thing. I first story I ever shot for Life that was published was uh, uh, the art scene on the Lower East Side of New York was exploding. Lots of funky art happening down on the Alphabet Streets in a, uh, a neighborhood that had been kind of, you know, a rough neighborhood for many, many years, as is very typical of the big city. Art, artists moved in and kind of were the shock troops that, you know, went into the old abandoned buildings and lofts and started creating art. Yeah. And so I documented that for life. That was my first major story. What is it about portraiture you enjoy, you think? I love the engagement. I, I love um, uh, the human face. To me, it's like terrain. Yeah. Uh, like a landscape photographer views um, mountainside, I view the human face. I like to look at the face and see how it could be addressed with light and uh, expression. And I, I really do um, uh, appreciate and enjoy the engagement that you have. Also, too, you know, as a photographer, you're oftentimes sent to make a portrait of somebody because they are fantastic at something. Yeah. You know, they're a singer or a dancer or a writer or whoever they might be, they are significant. And so it becomes your job to capture them in a hopefully significant way. And like one thing I kind of always ask people, like, um, did it kind of take you a while to find like your aesthetic, your photographic style, like your voice, um, the way you shoot? Because like looking at your work, it seems like you enjoy working with strobes. Um, have you always enjoyed working in that kind of style? Like, do you think it's important to kind of have like a distinct style when you're going to be working commercially or editorially, I guess? Hard to say. I, I, I think I'm probably still seeking my style because I've been a generalist. Mm -hmm. You know, as you've said a couple of times, I, my work is sort of all over the place. There is a predominant theme of people, obviously, and therefore portraiture. 
Um, I do work with a lot of, um, you know, applied light, flash, strobe, speed lights, big lights, you name it. I've also, for whatever reason, over time, because I developed a bit of an affinity or knack for lighting, magazines would sometimes look at me and assign me to big production yeah. kinds of things. Uh, the first major job I shot uh, for National Geographic, I, I lit the main building at Ellis Island. Damn. You know, and that was a huge, huge job. What do you light it with? Uh, mostly back in the day, mostly speedatrons, 2,400 watt second units. Yeah. Because, I, you know, I had uh, some of the expertise from um, uh, from Sports Illustrated lighting arenas. Yeah. So, you know, you'd, you'd set out, you know, uh, in the case of Ellis Island, I think we had, um, I always say this, it's, it's a rough estimate. I think we had about um, 60 power packs. Wow. And, you know, you'd... you'd uh, uh, do add a taps and zip cord and you'd go from pack to pack and you know and then try to get a sequence out of it and need uh, some assistance on that job <laughs> yeah i had four assistants yeah. and they all hated me at the end of the job <laughs> um you, you were talking a little bit about speed lights and i i think you're like when i think of speed lights i think of i think of joe mcnally like even you posted on your instagram today it was like you did some shot and it was like some like 19 speed lights mm-hmm. um what is it about speed lights you like and because i remember i think I, same thing at that photo plus you were talking about how you can utilize speed lights and not when did you kind of start working with speed lights and what do you think it is that you enjoy about them so much well they you know their virtues are they're small light and fast mm-hmm. uh, to be sure and the first cover story i shot for national geographic was called the sense of sight and it was a, a journey really into the the world of the eye and how it works mm-hmm. and that was national geographic in its heyday uh, I had six months to work on the story. So basically between that and the Six end, months? Yeah. That, yep. Damn, that was wild. <laughs> yep, yep. I had um, a contract for 26 weeks in the field. Seven-day weeks, 26 of them. Jeez. And so between that and the editing time, it was basically a year of my life. And I was traveling by myself, no assistant. And Africa, China, uh, Russia, you know, uh, the Arctic Circle all over and there were certain technical things about uh the sense of sight the nature of the story they were medical scientific etc and i had to bring some sort of lighting and i was working by myself yeah so i got used to what was then a very rudimentary uh version of the nikon speed lights um you know nikon's always been my system so i started using lord i think it was the sb24s yep um dedicated speed lights way back when and that was uh kind of opened a door for me into the use of you know super portable lighting I like it's just accessible to normal people like most people can't afford a $12,000 pro photo pack so a speed lights for me like I've I've used them for years and it's just like a good way to like learn how to use lighting and you don't have to have the crazy most expensive stuff but you can get amazing photographs with them yeah I mean they they have their place there is a there is a boundary line obviously between a small flash job and a big flash job for sure and you just have to be perceptive about that in terms of where where you place your emphasis. But um, yes, I mean, uh, speed lights are relatively affordable. Pack a good wallop. Mm. And the technology that's stuffed into them now with radio TTL technology is pretty significant. Yeah. And with the, the National Geographic, which you're kind of touching on, is there like uh, an assignment that kind of sticks out in your mind as memorable working with a magazine like that? And like, yeah, how is your experience working with them? Because it's like such a unique magazine. It is a unique and important magazine, uh, absolutely. I had my ups and downs, you know, working with them. You know, you, you know, you roll forward over the course of time, and maybe you drift, you shoot for other people, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't an even path for me at the National Geographic, but I did a lot of uh, of work that I'm proud of, and the magazine had the resources to put you in the field to do significant things. Mm. So I'll be forever grateful for them on that professional level, Definitely, to be sure. Is there like one assignment kind of sticks out in your mind that you did for them that you kind of enjoy, maybe just the experience or the photos you got out of it, you think? Sure. I mean, a couple. I mean, I did a story on the globalization of culture, which was a lot of fun because it was um, all about 
modern culture and how we're sharing the totems of our various cultures at an ever-increasing rate of speed, given the nature of uh, global communication, uh, big television networks, sports, fashion, food, um, cultural you know, practices. So we are exchanging those cultural totems at a very um, you know, increasing uh, fast increasingly fast pace and also frequency. So that was a fun story to do. Uh, and then, of course, I shot an aviation piece that became the first all-digital story ever shot in the history of the National Geographic. Oh, wow. So that was um, a highly scrutinized story because Geographic was dipping its toe into the digital waters really for the for the first time in terms of having a photographer in the field who didn't shoot a scrap of film. Was that a weird transition for you, uh, going from like shooting film to digital, and then like on top of that, do you feel like digital has made like people like sloppier uh, as photographers? You think? Interesting. Um, I, I I loved it, you know, pretty immediately. I I didn't really care. I lo- I I love the idea of making photographs, so it didn't really matter to me so much what was in the camera, film. Uh, a flashcard, whatever it was, mm-hmm. um, I was still shooting pictures. So the facility of digital was obviously very intriguing uh, right out of the gate. That was that was pretty fascinating. Even though there were limits on the digital medium at that point in time, that, that aviation story I shot on a D1X. Mm-hmm. And so back in the day in digital, when it first started, you know, forget about a lengthy time exposure. You know, things like that, because you'd be just burning the chip up. And um, those kinds of things had certain limits uh, to them, to be sure. But I embraced digital um, and uh, felt it was, you know, good to go by me. I didn't have uh, necessarily an emotional attachment to film. I wanted to keep working and digital was at the doorstep. So, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. I agree. I've had this conversation with a bunch of people. It's like the camera is just a tool the photographer it's 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 your ideas and however your creativity and your technique i guess how you're going to approach it the camera is just a tool um and one thing i was i was scrolling through instagram last night and there's one photo that i found really interesting you photograph share and one thing that you commented on the on the post i found interesting is that you said you felt like on that assignment you you felt like you could have done better what what was it about that assignment that you felt like you could have done better and oh I could have done better across the board. I should have done better. Uh, to me, the assignment represents a, uh, I mean, not a colossal failure because nothing I do is colossal. But, <laughs> but um, you know, for me personally, it was an abject failure of uh, mind, body, and will. She was a super high-powered celebrity. I was kind of this ragtag, you know, uh, freelancer for People Magazine. Mm-hmm. I had never worked with her before. She was moving fast, and she just kind of steamrolled me. Yeah. I got decent photographs out of it. I should have done better. I should have stood my ground yeah. and pushed really hard. Yeah, that's one thing, like, I, I've said this before, like, when I first started, I, when I, some of the first assignments I got, like, I felt like, I felt like I didn't want to waste people's time, but then I realized, like, if you're a photographer, your job is there to get the photo, and it's like, you kind of have to, like, control the situation, like, did it take you a while to kind of learn that, that, like, you kind of need to, like, push people sometimes to get what you need? Absolutely. You have to uh, stand your ground. And that's one of the beauties and benefits, I think, of getting older as a photographer is that I used to vibrate like a tuning fork. You know, if somebody pushed at me, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I, well, I'll be done very soon. You know, um, I realized, stop, you know, yep. you have a job to do. Yep. It's an important job. And if they're not going to cooperate, then you have to push back at that and try to seek cooperation hopefully on an amiable level, not a combative level, but I've done combat with, with uh, uh, people who didn't want to, you know, let me turn the corner on assignment, for sure. Yeah, what do you, yeah, I was going to say, like, how do you deal with those ter- tough personalities, you think? Like, what's the key? Like, how do you get through it? You, you, I, I keep, um, my, I keep hammering away. My, my editor at Life <laughs> looked at me at one point and he said, you know, you know, what you bring to the field is a curious blend of charm and aggression. Um, and there is a mix of that where you can be, you know, perfectly charming and polite, mm-hmm. but also aggressive to the point where you are going to get what you want. And just through sheer force of will, personality, or necessity, you uh, end up getting them to come along with you. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. And um, one another photo you shot, it was really cool. I think you photographed, it must have been like almost 100 jazz musicians. It was in a studio. And uh, I was kind of curious, like with group photography, um, photographing one person is hard enough, but like, for, what do you think the key is to handling groups? Because it's mm. it is tough. Like anybody who shot, ever shot like a wedding or anything like that, it is tough. <laughs> it is. It is. My first and really an only rule of group photography is make it fast and make it fun. Okay. You know, move really fast. Don't take no for an answer. Be in charge. Stand your ground. Get people to follow you you know and and somehow uh at the end of it even though you've taken their time and pushed them and pulled them they have enjoyed it yeah definitely and um you know another thing i was interested in talking about is like uh handling clients like a big part of this job is like negotiating contracts and uh contracts and whatnot um how, how do you deal with that because like uh you want to work with people. How do you deal with like tough clients, I guess? Well, you know, uh, I mean, you don't want to give everything away. It's like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And more now to say one more thing is like, I found it seems like more and more now with like commercial clients and even like editorial, they want, they wanted this kind of own everything outright. I even had one editorial client recently. They want to have like perpetual use of your photo to use for their own like website or social media to help their brand. How do you kind of deal with those situations? Cause you obviously you don't want to give everything away. Well, true. I mean, Lynn is an amazing buffer for me. She's mm-hmm. uh, very experienced at contracts, rights and rates. Yep. Um, in perpetuity usage is sort of a a done deal at this point because virtually every client we work with, you know, um, in the social media aspect of it, uh, you surrender or give over in perpetuity rights because they need to be protected as well. Because once you let a photograph go on the internet, de facto, it is out there and anybody can find it 10 years from now or something like that. So everybody has to be protected on that level. Yeah. Uh, what we do try to define our uh, rights for the main thrust of the, of the imagery or the general direction of the assignment. Are you going to use it as advertising? Well, then how long, you know, three years, two years, whatever it's going to be. Clients do kind of come at you really hard for in perpetuity use. We sort of shrug and say, really? You know, because in five years, these pictures are going to be dated. Yeah. So why are you still, you know, why do you push like that? Uh, So it's hard sometimes to get a client to listen to quote unquote reason because they're oftentimes like a a child on Christmas morning. They want that toy even though they really don't know how to play with it um, or aren't going to do all that much with it. They want the whole thing. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I had had this job recently where it was like some advertising thing and the client was like we want literally every photo like retouched and i was like i was like you realize if we shoot for like two days there's a good chance there might be like ten thousand photos and they were just like and it's like uh this managing like you said those expectations is it's interesting man yeah no we put limits on stuff and we manage um expectations as best as we possibly can Mm -hmm. before the job is uh it you know gets rolling um there is everything that we can possibly kind of get our heads around is in writing. So there are no surprises on either side of the fence. Yeah, it's important stuff. And uh, another series of photos I was interested in talking to you about was your uh, your Faces of Ground Zero. Um, was that a personal project you shot? Um, how did you kind of come to start, shoot those, I guess? Well, the... Um the thing about 9-11, um, you could call it a personal project, I guess. Uh, it, was, uh, it was my idea to shoot it. Mm-hmm. It stemmed from having a, a brief experience with the world's only giant Polaroid camera. And I had worked it and was familiar with it, again, via the mechanism of a very small assignment about the camera itself. The 20, it was, 20 by 24, right? No, the 20 by 24 is there's six or seven of those okay. in the world. Uh, I, I may be off there, yeah. but in there are a limited number. This was the only one of its kind. It's a life-size camera. So it makes an image that's 40, 40 inches by 80 inches. Holy shit. And uh, so if you're six feet tall, 
um, you're six feet tall in the picture. Wow. And it's a Polaroid process. 90 seconds after you make the exposure, you peel the chemical back off of it, and you have a life-size uh, giant Polaroid. And every frame you made, every click of the quote-unquote shutter, even though there was no shutter in the lens uh, at that camera, uh, was uh, three, at that point, $300. So every single click was 300 bucks. So I had an experience with this camera, as I said, and I, and I brought the idea to Time Warner. Mm -hmm. I went right to the top of Time Warner. I said, I can do this. Uh, I think it's a way to celebrate the people who are rallying around this calamity, this incredible disaster, whose lives have been affected, who are uh, lifting our spirits and doing, doing rescues and giving of themselves to sort of rebuild us um, and have us come back from this uh, incredibly disaster or disastrous day that we all remember and all know about. So, um, and they said, yes, go for it. And, uh, I moved into the giant Polaroid studio and I basically stayed there for about three weeks and we ended up photographing, I'm going to say through 280 New Yorkers. Damn. Um, and the core of the show ended up being about 85 selects mounted on aluminum and then put into frames and it traveled as an exhibit. It opened at Grand Central Station on, in January of 2002 and then it traveled to six cities that year and came back to New York on the anniversary of 9-11 and was staged again at Rockefeller Center where they usually put the Christmas tree. Yeah. They built a tent over Rockefeller Center and the Today Show broadcast from there and IMUS broadcast from there and uh, on 9-11 uh, night, uh, that anniversary, there was a gathering and the pictures were the, were the, uh, staging ground for that gathering, if you will. Wow. And when you're photographing that, um, like how far after the, the attack were you photographing that was like, right. We were in the camera within, within two weeks wow. or so. Uh, two to three weeks, I'll say, we were photographing. How was people's, like, what did they think about you approaching them? Like, the people you're photographing, what did they think? Like, how do you, because I'm sure you've dealt with this many times, like, shooting editorially. Like, how do you handle, like, sensitive subjects like that? Because it's such a sad event. Um, what was it like, I guess? You have to be direct and honest with people and try to impress upon them that this this is not capricious and you're serious and you're sympathetic but you would like them to participate with you because you will make it worth it. Mm. And um, people were looking at that point, I think, because it was such the scope of it. No one had seen before the destruction of it. And people were looking for a way to tell their story. Mm. And this was a good way to do that for some of the people who were involved. Yeah, and I saw you also, I think you went back like 10 years later and you photographed some, some of the people you shot originally. Mm -hmm. um, what was your thought process of kind of going back to it, do you think? Well, uh, the, the best thing for me as a photographer to come out of that involvement was the relationships and friendships I still have to this day. In fact, two weeks ago, I, I was at Ladder 6 in Chinatown photographing Keith Johnson, and the very first time I photographed Keith was about three weeks after 9-11. Wow. And so we're still friends, and I've been to his 60th birthday party, and, you know, our wives and, and know each other, and, and well, well Keith, is, Keith is with his longtime partner, Arlene. They're not married, but they've been together forever. Mm. And, um, you know line dancing out at a birthday party and stuff like that. So those friendships and those relationships from that day, that awful day to me are the, the beautiful thing about being a photographer is that I had this experience with these folks who are incredible folks who are amazing people, honorable, decent, compassionate, courageous. And I still know some of them. So that's a great thing. So 10 years later, a series of them uh, let me back into their lives. Mm -hmm. And I did an updated portrait 10 years down the road. Yeah. And that was a fun assignment in the sense that, you know, people were breathing again. They, their lives had evolved and changed and had, you know, a lot of positivity to them. You know, a couple of the firefighters I photographed were retired and happily so. Um, the one with the mother and the kids was really, that was my favorite one because the kids had grown up and it was really kind of interesting to see the... Uh... Yeah, Katrina Marino and, and her kids. Um, and the, 
they're a wonderful family. Katrina is uh, an extraordinary person. And, uh, yeah, um, that, that was, you know, seeing those kids 10 years later kind of all grown up in certain ways. That was wonderful. Yeah, definitely. And I think you even you did a little like motion piece with it too. And I was going to ask you like, do you feel like being a photographer nowadays is like doing motion work? Is you think that's like a necessity that photographers should be able to know how to do that, or what's your take on it? Absolutely, it's part of our our regime here at the studio. Uh, we are are moving in a in a video direction. Uh, as are lots of folks, um, nothing, you know, completely new about it, but yes, I think you have to have the capacity to shoot motion, um, and do video stories as well as still stories. If you are planning on sticking around and continuing to do this. Yeah. Cause it seems like, especially like the commercial stuff, they kind of want like the whole asset package where they can shoot some motion and stills. Uh, you find that being more and more common these days with the commercial stuff kind of. Absolutely. And even if it's not, you know, uh, quote unquote, uh, directed towards the, uh, the even if the video is not the primary mission of the assignment, there still is oftentimes a desire on the part of the client to have the quote unquote BTS, the behind the scenes has become almost as important as the pictures that you shoot because they want to propagate that message and it helps them do that online or uh, through social media feeds. Yeah, definitely. And uh, another thing I've noticed looking at your website, it seems like you really enjoy photographing dancers. What is it about like dance and um, like ballet? I you photographed a lot of dancers over your career. I find dance beautiful, particularly ballet. And I've been a, a fan of ballet dancers and how amazing they are and beautiful and hardworking, incredibly difficult uh, art form. That's this blend of an art form and an intensely physical endeavor. Oh, yeah. And so I really respect the work ethic and the sheer audacity of it. And um, I also love to work with dancers because they have, uh, they are imaginative people. They're creative people. They respond to music and motion, et cetera. So when you offer them an idea, uh, as I oftentimes say, a dancer can physicalize your imagination. Yeah. If you give them an idea, they can oftentimes literally wrap their body around it, yeah. which is really quite beautiful. It's almost like they want to kind of like collaborate and kind of bring something to it. Mm -hmm. that, that's really exciting. And, uh, you know, uh, another shoot I saw... <laughs> You you scaled the tallest building in the world, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. Uh, what was that for, and like, how was that experience? Because I saw the footage; it was crazy. It's the tallest building in the world. You're up there, the guys washing windows and getting like water scrumming on you. <laughs> what was that assignment all about? <laughs> it wasn't. It was a self assignment. Okay. Uh, the original climb was a self assignment. I I had climbed. Uh, for the National Geographic originally, I had climbed the Empire State Building a number of times. And I've done some urban climbing over the course of the years. Queensboro Bridge, I climbed the antenna on the uh, uh, original World Trade Center, the North Tower, uh, back in the day. Like, I don't know, I guess that was maybe 79, something like that. Mm. And uh, I've always enjoyed that idea of in an urban environment, congestion below you that you can get up somehow and establish this unique point of view. Yeah. So I started kind of applying, if you will, at the Burj Khalifa. I started rattling them with emails and it took about three years. Oh, wow. And they finally said, okay, yeah, you can climb our tower. And no money changed hands, you know. Uh, I just simply wanted to do it. All right. The tallest building in the world. So I did. And then I went back, I guess it was a year or two later, um, and I went and got, uh, you know, emergency trained and this and that in uh, the way to repel off the side of the building. And I went over the side with the window washers. And that was a lot of fun as well. That was a, a long haul down the side of that building. Damn. Yeah, I looked, I was like, Joe's crazy, man. <laughs> I was like, no, thanks, man. <laughs> uh, and how you say it was like self-assigning is that something you do a lot of and um do you find is it more just to kind of keep the creative juices going or in a way to like um hopefully find new clients or what is the self-assigning thing i guess all of the above yeah. you know i i self-assign myself to things that I'm, I'm interested in that are fascinating to me and that i also hope 
has the silver lining, if you will, of attracting attention to the studio and possibly generating work. Yeah, definitely. And a couple more questions I'll let you go. Um, being that like photography's uh, so competitive these days and it seems like everyone's a photographer nowadays, um, what do you think it is? Like what advice would you give to younger photographers to like stick out from the pack, you know? Because it's tough. There's so many photographers with social media. It's really uh, oversaturated market, it seems like, these days. Yeah, there's lots of people out there and uh, lots of people are shooting good pictures. You know, I see wonderful work, you know, across the board on the internet, 500 pixels, et cetera, et cetera, groupings of photographers who are doing interesting and innovative, innovative work. Um, so, yeah, how do you step aside from that? It's a very fast paced thing that is happening out there. Uh, you know, the way the business goes, Lord, the speed of it is, is a little bit uh, hard to keep up with. But as, as a photographer, I think you have to um, radiate through your pictures a certain uniqueness mm. uh, that will only come from shooting things that you really deeply care about. And then it's, it's like almost like, you know, uh, placing your bed at a Vegas you know, table is like you throw your stuff on the table and say, this is my best stuff. You know, what do you think? And see if the marketplace responds. I mean, that's way simplistic. I mean, you have to do a lot of things to sort of massage that message and get it out to people. But hopefully what happens is that you do your best work and somebody in, in arrest somebody, it stops them and says, Hmm, all right. I'll dig a little deeper and see what they're about. Exactly. Exactly. You and, hope to just stop somebody. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being that you're working freelance, there's a lot of ups and downs. You might be busy some months. You might be slower. Um, have you ever had a time where this business has kind of stressed you out, where you felt like you want, thought about doing something else? Like, how do you kind of get through those tough times, I guess? Because I feel like mm -hmm. a lot of photographers, every photographer I talk to, it's just like, man, it's slow this month, and then the next month we're busy. It's, it's a lot of up and downs with this business. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I've been through a lot of valleys yep. as a photographer, both creatively and otherwise, yep. to the point where, yeah, it has to creep into your head like, what am I doing? You know, how how am I, how am I, can I come back from this? Is you know, it just never seems to be uh, a an absolutely rock solid yeah. endeavor or uh, basis for a life. It's always shifting. Yeah. But then you look around and say, okay, what else do you want to do? Mm -hmm. And the answer for me is nothing yeah exactly you know yeah um I, I like shooting pictures i've always loved shooting pictures yeah. and i'll continue to do it yeah and what kind of keeps you excited about it um anything you're hoping to work on in the future i guess sure i have a couple of um projects for next year they're video projects i'm hoping that i can get the funding for them because i think they'll be not only fun to shoot but also significant in the aftermath uh beyond that you know, you you read a lot, you look at the world, and you try to uh, measure your response back to it. Seek work, and try to stay in the in the swing of things as best as you possibly can. Well, that's awesome. Well, Joe, can't thank you enough. Like I said, been a fan of your work for years, and everything you kind of, I've always really appreciated how much you kind of give back to the photograph community. You kind of put your knowledge out there, so I can't thank you enough. And uh, for people listening, um, where's the best place to check out your work? Well, we, uh, we have an Instagram feed, Joe McNally Photo, uh, that we pay a lot of attention to. We have a blog, you know, again, it's joemcnally.com backslash blog. And, you know, we also, you know, we, uh, you know, have a presence on Twitter and Facebook and we're constantly dropping notes. And I, I love the, uh, the Instagram feed because it, it's, you know, a selection of work that I, I hopefully enjoy and want to present to people. Mm -hmm. But I also enjoy my Twitter feed because I'm able to kind of drop out news and notes to people. Yep. And like just today, I, I you know, uh, the New York Times uh, uh, published a story about uh, unpublished photographs from years ago of Sidney Poitier, mm. who was, is an amazing individual, a formidable actor and presence and an icon, really. And uh, these pictures have never been seen before. So I dropped that out on my Twitter because 
maybe there's young photographers out there who aren't maybe seeing you know some of this material that the times might be presenting or other publications maybe somebody doesn't even know about sydney portier you know and uh you know so i find that's a way to kind of push photographic knowledge out there mm. and put that you know out in front of people who might not ordinarily be inclined to seek it themselves yeah. again not, nothing bad about them it's just like this is a fast-paced world and you know nobody sees everybody's twitter feed so you know you throw something out there into the mix that you find important or historically valid yeah be a part of the community exactly and uh, and then also you think you got some workshops coming up, right? So if you want to go to those, they can uh, check those out. Absolutely, we have two weeks in Portugal this year, two weeks in Romania, which should be a wild thing because we're in Bucharest and in Transylvania, yeah. which will be fun. And uh, and then I I am going in as you mentioned much earlier in our discussion. I'm going to what's called TPS, the photo- photography show in Birmingham in the UK, and that's a really vibrant, um, you know collection of photographers and manufacturers and skills and uh, speakers etc and there's a tremendous amount of uh, passion and energy at that show i really enjoy it uh been there once before looking forward to going back perfect well thanks joe i'll link it and people can go check it out and thanks so much thank you very much appreciate it so there you have it that was the joe mcnally interview I want to thank Joe so much for taking the time to uh, come on the podcast. Like I said, I've been following Joe's work for years. Um, His work is amazing and he's done so much. So definitely go check out Joe's website at joemcnally.com as well as his Instagram at joemcnally. He has uh, so many uh, amazing photos and stories over the course of his career. So definitely go check all that out. Um, Can't thank him enough. And yeah, as always, I'll be having weekly podcasts every Monday on iTunes, SoundCloud, as well as my website, alexgagnephoto.com, and on my Instagram, at alexgagnephoto. Thanks so much for listening, and take care.